wish politicians look out for miners and not just miners on an island somewhere. Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to heat, and the whole beast milking welfare. God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fun drowned. Young men are putting themselves six feet in the ground, is all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. That guy went from just a farmer who got invited onto a radio show, a radio program. That's why the YouTube video is the W whatever, whatever. Filmed that, got put on YouTube, jumped to TikTok. It went uber viral. Millions of views in 24 hours. Just enormous. And it's, one, obviously, it's intensely real, right? So it's just picked up on that. And two, it tells a story about what it's like to be in America right now and how people feel about being lost in their own country. That is so, ah, it's so perfect and sad and perfect. It is. It, it's uh, funny for a show where we do a lot of reactions to things like that. The only reaction I can really muster is like kind of just silence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Cause it's, it, it is, it's impactful and it's true. And I think he's speaking to, a very overtly silent group of people who maybe feel forgotten, which, you know, was a lot of the the rationale behind why Trump was elected in, in 2016, right? People felt ignored by the political establishment. And I mean, I think there's probably some reason why this song is going mega viral right now, mm-hmm. because it's speaking to people who feel like they've been forgotten or they're not being heard. I think there's also something where it seems like entertainment over the last decade or two has become like super heavily corporate and safe in a way. And we're starting to see all these like new up and comers coming out that are a little bit more uh, counterculture uh, or at least you're, we're watching the cultures shifting in a great way where there's like new messaging that's entering the art sphere now. Um, you know, there's people like, you know, there's a bunch of like up and coming rappers like Tom McDonald, who's very con- countercultural. You're seeing, uh, there's a lot, so much backlash happening to old school guys like ice cube lately. Um, and now he's kind of being embraced by like new culture. Um, usually, especially after everything that happened with COVID where he like lost the $20 million deal and all that stuff. So yeah, it's, it's just interesting to see how the culture is moving right now. Um, For a long, long time, the right basically said the left owns all the culture. What are we supposed to do? How can we win? How can we make movies and film and all that kind of stuff? And we have the biggest box office grocer for the year is The Sound of Freedom. And this guy blowing up. I mean, going from just a farmer singing in a field with his dogs to now he has major country music artists saying, I'll produce your show. I'll fund the production of your first, your first album, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, like the guy has a real opportunity. I don't know. So it's, it's this interesting paradox, right? Because it points to the fundamental unfairness of a world where merit isn't respected anymore, where people don't get their just reserves while people are rewarded, uh, not based upon what they contribute. And it, it claims this, it holds this ground and says, this is unjust while simultaneously it being a huge success for a success story of this guy's passion, uh, for music, for singing, for saying something true, uh, completely making him an overnight star. Uh, it's, it's a, it's this interesting paradox that we live in all the time. And, you know, that's what, that's what's so fascinating to watch. Absolutely. And it shows the power of, uh, of art to be able to change the narrative, 
to, I mean, it is the narrative, right? I mean, the things we talk about, the things that we care about, ultimately politics, yes, you know, culture is more relatable to most people. People can, can sometimes ignore politics or put it on the back burner because they don't want to get embroiled in the, you know, the heated polarized debate or whatever, but like culture is, is everything. And music particularly is something that 99% of people can resonate with. And, uh, and that's a, that's a beautiful piece. Well, it's like the, uh, old Andrew Breitbart, uh, quote, the, uh, that politics is downstream from culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a lot of people that kind of enter the political sphere and they just think politics is everything, but largely speaking, politics isn't going to change unless kind of the underlying culture of a society changes. And, kind of what I was saying with how kind of corporate all of our entertainment has become. Like we're watching all the stuff that's happening with Hollywood right now with like the writer's strike and kind of like everybody's kind of getting sick of the old movies. And it seems like uh, our culture is kind of being exported elsewhere, um, especially with the younger generation. And uh, like, it's interesting to just watch these new up and comers come out of the woodworks now and everybody's just starting to embrace them. It's like, there's like a certain authenticity there that's with these newcomers and everybody's just like, Oh my God, there's something different. Like it's, it's not like the same old garbage that we keep hearing over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. It's the same countercultural thing that we've talked about in episodes past where uh, there, you know, if, if AI copywriting becomes a thing, there will be a demand for, real authentic human created content right and and similarly where we have this very plastic manufactured mono narrative media there is obviously judging by this guy's success a lot of demand for the real authentic heartfelt storytelling of of people that feel like they've been been forgotten so super powerful stuff Thanks for starting with that. Yeah. It's refreshing. It's a, it's a positive note. I mean, it's a, it's a, obviously a somber tune, but I think it's a really like, it's a really great thing to see a guy go from nothing to stardom f- for something that really means something. Yeah. I, I hope he can turn it into something. Like, I hope it's not just like a one hit wonder type of a thing and he can actually just build something great out of this. Oh, I'll, I, I'll be, I'll, I'll be following. I'll subscribe to him. And absolutely. Kind of see what he's doing. Absolutely. We'll put his uh, link in the show notes in case you haven't checked him out yet. Yeah, Oliver Anthony was the guy's name. <laughs> Well, thanks for tuning in and welcome back to the Liberty Portal podcast or what will be the last episode of the Liberty Portal podcast as you know it. We'll talk about that more in a second. Today, the news we're going to be covering is pretty varied. There is new evidence of voter fraud out of Michigan stemming from the 2016 election. Pardon me, the 2020 election. Uh, We've got important developments in the Middle East and Taiwan. So some foreign policy stuff to cover. And we've got a glorified traffic cone, as he is self-described, sentenced to four years in prison for his involvement in the George Floyd murder or death. What are we? we, Is it a death murder? Depends on your perspective. I guess it depends on your perspective. (laughs) We're going to get into it. Murder subjective. Right, right. (laughs) And lastly, bank records that were just released show that the Biden family has received millions in payments from foreign governments without registering as a foreign agent. So we've now got proof that the Biden family is working with foreign agents, foreign governments, foreign entities without going through the proper steps to establish that they should be and can be doing that. uh, Just adding fuel to the fire of the influence peddling scandal that is just kind of burning out of control right now uh, in DC. Before we get into that stuff, 
we've got the usual suspects and we, we should talk about uh, our plans for the the new episode david rand how are you doing great yeah excited for the growth of this thing well, we've gotten semi-viral in the last week with uh some of our reactions so we're obviously touching on the right kind of new strategy to grow this thing and, and allow us to impact more people and help people think more carefully about the news Absolutely. And we thank you for watching, for sharing, for liking, commenting, and all that stuff that you're doing for us. It is making a difference. It means everything to this man. Kyle, how are you? It's good. Uh, Captain Quigley on Twitter, if you want to see me LARP as a penguin. Um, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> for, new, for new listeners, you probably have no, under, uh, no idea what I'm saying right there. But uh, no, I'm looking forward to doing this and kind of our strategy going forward on everything. I'm looking forward to kind of talking about that. Yeah. So before we get into the news, just really quick, uh, we are going to be rebranding the show. Uh, we love the Liberty Portal podcast. It does have a certain connotation. It does speak to a certain audience. And our mission here is, is broader than just speaking to, to folks who might already be close to the Liberty movement, right? Or, or already involved in politics. We want to speak more to culture, right? Overall, and maybe less directly to politics specifically and try to bring more people into the fold, and bring more people who might not necessarily consider themselves political in nature into a way of thinking about the world that allows them the tools to, to separate from the mono narrative, to, to protect ourselves, each other from deception and manipulation by media narratives. And so we're going to rebrand the show, something that's a little bit more appealing potentially to more people, right? And David, do you want to talk more about that? Yeah. I mean, I remember when we very first started, we had this great meeting with a guy that I actually did jujitsu with uh, named Will, who gave us a lot of great advice. And Will was like, look, guys, I'm not a political person at all, but I think your podcast is really good for X, Y, and Z reasons. And you got something good going on here. Here's some advice about how you can help make your thing grow. We took advice and it's really helped. You know, and, and from that moment, I was always like picturing him in my head when we were like, okay, who's our audience? Well, I don't want to just talk to just people who already think like me. I want to talk to people who aren't specialists in this area, who don't know how to think about the news from a systematic, integrated, you know, point of view, from a principle-based point of view, and help teach them how to do that so they can do that for themselves. Like that is empowerment versus like just, you know giving people fish. I want to teach people how to fish as much as we can. So, uh, what I, what, and, and one of the things I was, you know, I love what the guys are, are doing at Liberty portal, selling books and doing their stuff. And we want to keep, you know, working with them and supporting them. Um, and you know, but we think that with a brand like this, we can approach more people with this message and help more people who are kind of in that same spot as well without having that immediate barrier because Will didn't have that barrier cause he knows me, right. He, you know, we helped, you know, strangle each other and nothing <laughs> forges a bond faster than that. So, <laughs> uh, so therefore he didn't have that barrier, but a lot of people, if they first came across one of our clips, they'd be like Liberty portal. Uh, I don't know. We kind of had that feeling that it was a, it was a bit of a barrier. So we want to try to see how we can use this brand to reach more people. Absolutely. And I'm excited to debut it for you next week on our next episode. We're going to roll out the new branding. You'll see the names change across all the social media. Nothing else is going to change. You won't need to follow any new pages. It's all going to be the same stuff, but just a new name, a new look and uh, the same content, the great content that we have uh, been honored to be able to produce for you and that you've become accustomed to, to hearing and seeing from us. And of course, going forward again, if you have any ideas, questions, suggestions, please do drop us a comment. Uh, you know, drop us a direct message on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, anywhere that you happen to be listening to this. We appreciate hearing from you. It really helps us make the show better and serve you better. So without further ado, let's, let's drop right in to the first story here. 
We've got new evidence out of Michigan uh, claiming voter fraud uh, that, that occurred in the 2020 election. David, why don't you set the stage for us here? All right. So there's this business, right, called GBI Strategies. It's an operation out of, tw- of Tennessee since 2014. It's a Democrat vendor group, and this is very common, right? So what happens is you have these campaigns. They hire on folks to do certain parts of the campaign. Sometimes it's communications, development, uh, donors, and stuff like that. Other times it's actual field. Uh, these folks were get-out-the-vote specialists who worked on grassroots campaigns to get out the vote. They hired canvases, you know, $15 an hour, expenses paid, prepaid card, and rental cars, right? And so those folks go door-to-door and, and do, do Register people to vote and uh, do what's called ballot harvesting, which is where after votes votes have gone out on early vote and mail-in voting, they go and they say, hey, you know, I'll help you. I'll get your ballot turned in by hand right now okay. if you just give it to me. And, th- and that's that's perfectly legal, right? I mean, because there's in elder, some states. In some states. Yeah. And, and it makes sense, right? Because there are maybe elderly folks who have trouble dealing with that or, or whatever, right. right? Like maybe there are some, there's some legitimate reasons why it could be right. a positive thing. And people have the first amendment, right? To tell someone, ask somebody, Hey, are you registered to vote? And they have of course the freedom to say, hey, let me help you register to vote. Right. If they if they struggle with that. Yeah. So the, um, the question is, is how much of this is real is like, is, is authentic. And that's, what's really interesting here. We have one gal named Brianna Hawkins, uh, with who submitted Eight to ten thousand ballots at one time, uh, and the amount of evidence that what Brianna specifically was doing is pretty substantial that it was fraud. So the source uh, claims in October the FBI were handed Michigan voter fraud case files. Right. This is another part of this is that the federal government's been very unreliable in following up on this. So back in October, the FBI released their, uh, you know, got basically handed by the police in Michigan uh, an accusation of voter fraud and they didn't do anything with it. This is early on in from the primary election that year. So, oh, then, so this is October of 2020. Yes. And then uh, and then afterwards, we have the November case, which is where Brianna Hawkins comes in because absentee ballots go out in that October time frame. Uh, in this one, they they handed over to FBI, but the police kept, kept following up on it. Is what I it seems to be saying. A lot of this is from Gateway Pundit, so you know, it's a it's a it's a blog, but it's they've they've broken some pretty major stories, although they're not perfect like everybody else. So um, they the FBI gets over that, but the the FBI keeps cold handling these, meaning they get them and then they never seem to follow up on them. Hmm. Uh, increasing the police found, um, uh, so the the police following up on this was looking at GBI got a warrant for their headquarters in uh, Michigan went there and found Pelican cases of semi and fully automatic rifles with joint suspend suppressors optics and customized pistols at a and silencers at their at, at this issue? vendors headquarters GBI's headquarters yes whoa yes in Michigan on a search warrant now all of them were determined to be legal by the ATF <laughs> It doesn't fully automatic weapons in, wait a minute, Michigan. Oh, you know, Michigan isn't the most second amendment friendly state, right? I mean, like they, they're, they have a rural population that is gun friendly, but it's, it's uh, (laughs) a, that's strange. So, and and, and, yeah, why would a company that is supporting elections and campaigns have Pelican cases full of weapons? I mean, semi or fully auto doesn't super matter. Like why would they have, just right. cases full of guns. No one knows. Just red flags. Just, it just. I mean, it's uh, when I was writing that down, I was like, "Is this relevant?" I was like, "Wait, of course it's relevant." 
why? You know, so it's like, it's a great question. We need to know. And the only way you know is if you ask the question and then, you know, someone can make a lot of money in the press actually doing the investigative journalism. So um, police also found partially filled out voter registration cards, which is very interesting as well because of the implications here. Now, let's rhyme back. This is 2020. It's forever ago. And it feels like we're adjudicating something really old, but it is relevant now because it was Trump's claims that there was fraud in the election, which led to this last implied thing, right? It's his speech about those elections that seems to say that he encouraged the people to overthrow the government in January 6th, right? Mm -hmm. That's the accusation, the last, last indictment. So what matters is if he was knowingly saying, saying a false thing, or if that thing was, he said was, even if it was a lie, but actually turned out to be true, that would be a major development, right? So when it comes to Michigan, he won Michigan by 15,000 votes last time in 2016. He lost by 150,000 votes in 2020. Wow. Right. So like you can look at that. A lot of people say that's just skepticism, but I'm not sure it's necessarily necessarily fraud, right? That doesn't tell you anything. All it says is that, that he just lost by a lot when he won by a lot. That could tell you more about how much Hillary Clinton's hated than, than how people you know feel about Joe Biden. Sure. Also, additionally, that keep in mind, we had the summer of George Floyd, we had uh, COVID, all that kind of stuff all happened at that time. So there was a lot of, you know, unrest and people tend to whenever there's unrest, just vote against the incumbent. Sure. But what we do has uh, do have is with this case, if the fraud case here were common across GBI, who had approximately 40 canvassers and uh, employees, then it could be enough to impact 150,000. Think about it. 40 times 80 or times, times 8,000 8, 8, in a single day across 30 days, you can easy, you can get way past 140. Oh, yeah. Now, the question is, is how many of these ballots are authentic and how many are dropped off? So so my question are, is... are real. And, and, and the evidence that um, Brianna Hawkins, which, which her specific ballots in these case, in this like sample of her ballots have been found to be substantially like fraudulent in nature, right? Where, and what, what uh, criteria are they using to establish that those are fraudulent? Not matching the voter file signature, not having valid addresses, not having a whole bunch of things that are necessary to validate someone's voter registration with their ballot submission via mail ballot. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So um, in, in, the, in the folks that are kind of trying to bring up this evidence, it's it's important to know, and I think this actually is errors made a lot. And when they talked about the story a lot this week, they were like, "This is smoking gun evidence." It isn't. It's it's evidence. It's not smoking gun evidence. That's systemic fraud. But there's a possibility here, right? There's like smoking gun means we have the entire paper trail and we don't, right? We don't know. We if we had GBI's internal documents saying everyone commit fraud, that's one thing. But if Brianna Hawkins just happened to be a rogue employee, we can't just assume that. And I see a lot of right-wingers just doing that. They're saying, oh, they're a lefty, so therefore they're all committing fraud. That's mm. just dumb. Um, okay, so it's important to note that in order to bring out to bring a lawsuit challenging an election, it must be proven that the challenge itself, like the, the accusation, if true, could have changed the election. Does that make sense? And this is a very strange part of our jurisprudence around election fraud. So in order to bring a lawsuit challenging the election, it has to be established that that the thing being challenged could have changed the outcome. Right. So if 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 Biden had won by like so many votes that it's like just impossible for any challenge in a given state to overturn that, uh, they would throw it out. Yeah. Right. Okay. Before it can even be heard. Right. That's the that's the important part. Right. So the accusation has to be on scale enough to for a judge to say okay this could have overthrown the election 
Is this accusation on that scale? Well, that was my case, right? It seems to be if they can prove that GBI, all 40 canvassers were doing the same thing as Brianna Hawkins. And yeah, the question is, and it isn't clear to me if that's the case they're going to make, right? Because they it could, because if you just say, well, Brianna Hawkins, therefore the election's overthrown, it's like that won't work. Um, you have to say that there was this firm that had this practice and this firm had this big of impact that was bigger than 150,000. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the firm has an ideological bent. It's a democratic firm. So, um, and additionally to this, what's really interesting is this corroborates uh, testimony that was given uh, about this from a poll watcher in Michigan. Uh, writing down the ballot numbers and the last names of the person of the ballot uh, the, that had the name on the ballot, they were all in sequence. These are absentee ballots, mail-in, mail-in ballots. They cannot be in sequence. 2232 cannot have 2233 next to it because if they're mailed in, they come in all different numbers. And when when I started noticing that these numbers are almost next to each other, like one or the other was in the middle, but then they were almost next to each other, my, my antennas went up. That's exactly when I thought something is not right here. Then I asked the supervisor, there was not even a date on those uh, envelopes. It said November 0-2020. There was no second number there. Then I said, what is the date on this one? Then they got really mad at me. They said, you're not letting us do our job. You're disturbing us. And at that point, because we really don't want to be kicked out, you know, so we were just kind of not challenging anything because we want to still stay in the room because we barely had anybody. Um, Not only that, the sequence ballot numbers were all from the same area, like the Goddard Street in the downtown Detroit. Goddard Street, sequential ballots, signatures were all alike. They had no date stamp. It said like it was empty after zero. There was no third or second or first or nothing. And um, they were, none of them were coming up in the system. They were all being entered manually. They even knew that none of these details would even be in the poll book or in the system. Wow. So, okay, so let, let's talk about what a poll watcher is because a lot of people don't know this. So basically how elections should work is you have the election workers and then each party and even outside groups can have people who observe what's going on in order to make sure that there's no fraud, right? So what she was was a Republican poll watcher watching the, the people who are employed by the government go through the ballots. And what she noticed was that the, that the ballots that they were going through were in sequential order. So each ballot has a number that has a sequential order to it. If that's true, that's very interesting, right? Because if you were, for example, filling out ballots in mass, you might fill them out in order in order to make sure that you were yeah. You just got to stack a ba- you just got to stack of ballots that were just freshly printed, right? And right. You just go serial number by serial number. Right. The question is, is like if if they're doing their job, what they should be doing is checking that against a voter file, right? So if someone ordered them. Right. It doesn't. At what stage would it be ordered? Would be interesting, mm-hmm. right? Unless it was handled by an intermediary, like a ballot harvester, right? So even if they go out and they get it for some reason, they would then order all. Like they would take all these ballots in, right, out of order, order them, and then hand them to the government. That would be very like. What? Why would? What's the gain in putting them in order? It would take so much time. Like right. it's not worth the energy. I don't understand why you would do that. Right. 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 Especially when you have a limited means time mm-hmm. to go out and get out the vote. Like you're in a lot of pressure. So why would you? So I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that um, I'm not trying to engage in conspiracy, conspiracy theorizing, but I do think that there we have this strange magic word problem 
election with, integrity and with with things. elections where we say it has to be it, there can't be fraud because if there were fraud i'd have to question premises i don't want to ever have to question yeah and um i can't go with that i just i just i'm my allegiance is too much to the truth yeah to go with that it's just it's just head in the sand type approach especially because we know fraud has existed if you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. We have a great story in Montana about fraud. Do you know that story? I don't. Okay, do you know why Montana... So Montana... Helena is the state capital of Montana, right? Uh, do you know who the contender for state capital was back in the day? When we were going from, treasure, uh, from a territory to a state? Butte. Butte. So there was an election where they tried to like basically put the question to the public. And, uh, and this is something I was told growing up in Helena and something that I was told at the Capitol, uh, is that there was, um, if after this election, Helena won, but years later, decades, decades later, they find this like secret compartment somewhere, uh, in, in the old state Capitol building where they find all these ballots that are all Butte ballots. Whoa. Right. And so they probably enough to, to overcome for, for Butte being the state capital. Boy, that would have changed the trajectory for Butte. And Helena. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, and like, you know, we know these things happen. We know, you know, there was a shootout out down south back after World War yeah. II. There was a, fam- there's like, a famous moment called like Bloody Tuesday, and it was about a governor's race, I believe. Um, and that had direct connections with the presidential candidate at the time. Like, I can't remember who it was. It's been a long time since I looked at that. But yeah, right. yeah like it's not crazy that this stuff has happened like ma- mafia's stuffing ballots and things in the past has, has is a part of our history yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i'd like to throw um, in too that like people might be wondering like why does it matter like this election is so far in the past like why are we re-adjudicating something that happened you know three years ago now almost three years ago and i think it, it goes so far beyond uh you know what people might just want to paint with a broad brush as like you know, Trump apologism or, or just wanting to like, you know, see Biden like, you know, owned in this way. This is really like, this is, this is a nonpartisan issue because this, this gets to the core of is your will as a voter being accurately represented, no matter what party you're a part of, if fraud is able to be committed within our election system, it could be your candidate next time that gets hosed and it doesn't matter. It's really about, you know, is the will of the people being done? And in this case, there is suspicion that it's not, and we should all care about that regardless of whose party is implicated. Right. So imagine if you had like a gas station and you had six people registered to vote out of that gas station. It's not a valid address, right? You can't register people to vote there. Right. Uh, you know, the, if, if someone does that and there's no check and there's no pressure to say, Hey, our elections legit, then you're giving the power of that person who registered six people to vote at a gas station, the power of seven people to vote. 
And that's not fair. It's not fair That's at not all. how democracy should work. And it, there's, there's an injustice to there that's fundamental. So one, I think we should challenge, I think it should be challenged on a principle, a philosophical basis. The fact that you can't say, hey, whoever's doing that, that's a criminal offense and we should go after them, right? That we should absolutely say that. Yeah. And then uh, second, you know, the, um, you know, the, 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 if, if voter fraud is happening, if we put our heads in the sand, all we're doing is giving power to people who are the least trustworthy, people who are particularly lying to, get, to potentially do that. So what are our policies and how do we guarantee a safe, secure, and timely election? Right. Those are good questions and a whole lot of policy debate should happen there. But for the starters, we should, we should require an ID to vote. I mean, we have a required ID to do so many things. We should require an ID to vote. And I can't see how anyone could be so racist as to imply that someone because of their color of their skin couldn't figure out how to get an ID. That just ticks me off. It just... I mean, it's it's shocking in its blatant <laughs> racism, right? <laughs> just, just like, they don't know how to find the place to get your ID. I mean, like, come on. Well, what, what do you come want, on. What do you not have the time or the resource? Like, of course. Like, that's just... That's a thing that anybody can do. No, right. no question. Right. And I mean, you, you have to do it to get on a plane. Mm-hmm. You have to do it for so many other things, you know, to buy alcohol. You have to show it. Like, come on. Like, this is such a low bar. It's such a low bar. And this is one of the most important processes in our country. It's a low bar. Let's mm-hmm. just, of course we should do that. Well, and that could be one of those noble lies, right? Is, uh, is you put out this thing is like, well, poor people can't get IDs or, you know, this racial group or whatever can't get IDs, but that could just be the, the, the cover for allowing more fraudulent events to happen. Right. Well, I, I think there's definitely a potential of that. And Patrick, Bet David was talking about it when he appeared on Rogan's podcast, uh, earlier yeah, in the last week. week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, saying that very thing you know one side you know i guess predominantly the left would would probably say oh yeah we shouldn't require an id at tsa because then that gives them the cover to say and also we shouldn't require an id to vote simply because you know in this at least in the case of the last election that may have been one of the mechanisms that allowed them to play some funny games who knows right at this point we have we have some suspicion that that might have been the case so should be investigated yeah, and it's one of those things where there's there's like enough of these variables everywhere that it should just send people's, you know, their brain should kind of just be like something seems off and it requires more investigation. Like, I'm not saying like, yes, 100% Trump won the election or he didn't or whatever. Like, there's just like enough of these variables everywhere, like Michigan, Maricopa County, all, all these different areas. Uh, there's like the D'Souza documentary, The 4,000 Mules. I watched that. I thought there was some compelling evidence in there. Um, it's just a matter of do these things, does it all kind of culminate into this big problem? I think it's worthy more investigating. And I think there is the, a magic word problem there of there's so many people in the kind of this political sphere. You have all these like poli sci nerds that I think they require for their worldview for everything to be kosher. Like everything is, uh, completely fine. And there's like a mental block. If you say anything I'm like, yeah, that's a weird variable right there. Like there's, there's some suspicious activity that happened there. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to know more about that. There's like, Nope, I don't want to hear it. Like there's like this mental blocker that happens. Yeah. Um, and I, I find that with political people just in general, mm-hmm. I, but then it also goes on the other side. Like there's, there's people that they really need the election for their worldview to work. They really need it to be fraudulent. Yeah. <laughs> so like you have like this battling kind of religious faith that exists on both sides. And the question is, it's probably somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. um, on this, but uh, yeah. well, and, and we can't assume that that fraud would only occur on one side of the political spectrum. Right. I mean, I think a Trump supporter might be inclined to say if they felt wronged in 2020, get back at the other side and do something that's maybe a little bit more shady or, 
fight fire with fire. The thing is we should take the fire out of the situation, (laughs) right? No one should be playing with fire. This is so important. We should just keep it above board as much as possible and do whatever it takes to keep it that way. Also, another note too is committing fraudulent elections is our foreign policy. This is what we do in other countries. (laughs) (laughs) That that always took me off after 2016 when they said that, that, uh, sorry, Trump was a president because of fraud by Russia. And I was like, you guys have been doing this foreign policy for every other country on the planet forever. And now you're mad is assuming that Russia did this. And it didn't even turn out to be true. It was completely false and made up by the, you know, uh, by the Hillary campaign, yeah, campaign, yeah. The dossier. you know, yeah. so like, it's not, it's it, even then think about the chain of reactions. Hillary loses the election, blames it on Russia bunch of you know workers on the ground all over the country in 2020 say well trump cheated therefore we should cheat and then go do the same thing possibly that's it possibly there's no centralizing force it could just be the other underlying incentive based upon the recklessness of the hillary clinton campaign making up a lie that we now know is a lie right after six years of adjudicating it we now know it's a lie it could even be less decentralized than that than even trickling down from the hillary campaign it could just be that a bunch of people felt so adamantly opposed to Trump that they wouldn't stop at anything to keep him from getting reelected. I mean, it could be just that people, you know, kind of lost their minds in a certain way and it happens on both sides. And I, I, I'm really curious to see what 2024 does because you hear a bit of the rhetoric circling that Republicans are starting to talk about like doing ballot harvesting themselves. And so it's like, well, there are going to be Hawkeyes on that from the left and yeah. they're probably going to be calling out potentially some of the same things that we're identifying here as being problems on the left. So, I mean, it stands to be potentially a devastating shit show next year. And (laughs) and I'm actually really excited to see what happens. There's also this (laughs) other element of what happened in 2020 was um, there were all these grant programs coming from these big entities like Facebook, the Knight Foundation, the Rothschilds. Everybody gets spooked out when you hear the Rothschilds. Can't say that word. But the Rothschild (laughs) Foundation was one of these entities. Uh, Like you can just, you can look at the money uh, is uh, where they were going into specific counties and they're basically like in order to guard the election because of the covid stuff that was happening it was like we need these election rule changes but then you would have like these mayors of cities that'd be like well that needs an act from the legislature and there's like we will give you more money for the grant program and then they would just like bypass the legislator um so it's one of those things where there's like this like questionable legality on voter changes that happen on like the process changes that happened in very important counties in all of the swing states right And it becomes one of those things where you're like, okay, like, is it like stealing the election? Was it legal? I don't know. Like it's, it's a, it's a question, but it was definitely shady. Right. And when, when we're talking about this is like Zuckerberg gave like $400 million to this, right. To these grant programs, the Knight foundation, something like that as well. Um, and it's just, everybody just kind of like, eh, whatever. Like, well, yeah. And very interestingly in the one state that went the other direction, which is Florida, where DeSantis and the, the legislature there were, careful to put in protections against some of these sort of shady things. DeSantis widened his margin from what he won the, the election cycle previous. He won by like yeah. 20 points or something. Yeah. But uh, across could, the Dakotas, Montana, Wyoming, Trump won and, and a lot of localities took that money too. Sure. Right. Sure. So I don't I, I only know those States cause I happen to be involved in those States, but sure. I, I'm just, I'm not sure there's okay. So just think about it epistemologically. You know that you have a shady figure, <laughs> figures giving money to a political figure, trying to advocate for something. I don't have enough resolution about what exactly they were asking them to do, other than then facilitate ballot, ballot mail-in ballots mm-hmm. in their system and 
you know, because of COVID, there was a lot more load on mail-in ballots because people didn't want to go to polls. And in some places, they actually said you couldn't go to polls and they shut down the polls and they made everything mail-in, which I think was wrong. I'm just saying, until you have the evidence on the other side that there was some other statistical anomaly because of what happened on the front end, it's it, it is shady, but it's I wouldn't I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't rank it as like the sort of shadiness like we're seeing here with the Michigan case or even the ones where there's videos of everything getting shut down and people taking out boxes and counting it mm-hmm. and that actually turned out to be a legal process. But everyone was like, how could that be a legal process? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it, it, it's a, it amazes me how many things are legal processes in here, and that's where the discussion really ought to be. Is like, how do you make sure that your elections are very secure through the policies first? And then once your policies are secure, then you can have the discussion about where fraud happens. Yeah. But right now, I mean, in, in Atlanta, for example, in the, in the in that in that example, it blew me away. I couldn't believe it, right? Because they literally sent the media home, everyone was gone, and then all of a sudden they start bringing out more ballots after everyone left and started counting. And there was all this online outrage. I was online outrage. I was like, I can't believe this. I mean, that would be completely illegal in Montana because I know Montana's election law pretty well. And they were like, no, it's totally legal here. I had to dig to find that, mm. that answer. Wild. So, I mean, I was like, <sighs> yeah. Well, and that was another thing is like, I watched the D'Souza documentary back in like 2021, 2022, whenever that came out. And, uh, like what they did there and, you know, take it for a grain of salt too, is like D'Souza is a big Trump guy. Like, obviously he kind of has his, you know, views here and he's kind of like, he's trying to prove what he believes to be true. So, you know, there may or may not be useful in that regard, but, um, what they did was like the 4,000 mules is they found like on security footage of like people like messing with the ballot drop-off places at like late at like two in the morning and things like that. And then they, they bought a bunch of cell phone data and tracked these people down to the entities that they were going to. And they would find them going to places like this GBI strategies. I don't know if this was one of those, but they would like, and, and like you would see people putting in a bunch of ballots into the place. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's like one of those things where, like it could be regular ballot it could be regular ballot harvesting. could be yeah like we yeah. don't know like there's yeah. just enough of like well it's kind of shady that this was happening at two in the morning right? <laughs> yeah. like two in the morning is a strange time <laughs> it's yeah. like yeah and if it uh, were legit wouldn't you do it at a normal time like yeah daylight hours maybe <laughs> but but yeah. like they, they went That's through they went through a whole process of like filtering out and tracking cell phone data and stuff yeah. like they went to data brokerage um and did all that stuff so mm-hmm. i think the two th- i think i think it was an interesting documentary i i watched a, you know a lot of it i had to miss some of it for a work thing but um i did think that a lot of it could be explained by completely legal phenomena though yeah like i needed and, more evidence and that's and that's the question that the right has to ask which is it's not enough just to be outraged that ballot harvesting happens it exists, when it's legal yeah. right yeah. you have to say this is legal and it should be illegal because i'm concerned about xyz things and then second like you got and then once you've secured that then you have that other question okay how do we make sure that where our elections are secured where can we detect fraud yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, that's there's some interesting evidence and data points right here. I need yeah. further investigation on those data points. And, yeah. I, and I haven't seen like the further investigation. Yeah, Ron, it might not be there. there. Well, yeah. and, and that's that's one of the questions, right? Is yeah. Then people lose their con they lose their um their interest in this topic after a while because it's been adjudicated for so long. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. 
Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Um, much like foreign policy. Now I want to talk about foreign policy real quick. We're going to talk about two different theaters of foreign policy because their developments happened this week. But I want to do, I want to note this real, just, just, just think about it real quick. Foreign policy is a lot like going broke. It happens very sudden, uh, very slowly. And then very suddenly, right? Uh, I forget who, who, whose quote that is. It's like, um, it's, it's been attributed to a few different people. Uh, okay. Yeah. But everyone is just ignores it until all of a sudden, wait, we're giving money to Ukraine. It just ignores it. Like, oh, wait, why did they attack us? They just ignore it. It's like, oh, man, uh, soldiers are being assaulted in this barracks in the Middle East. And one of the, the tricks that I, I want to try to figure out with this podcast is how do we kind of equip people so that when foreign policy things happen that do affect us directly, we have that lens to be able to engage clearly in it uh, because we've done the work ahead of time. And if more people do that, I think we'll have a more restrained and better foreign policy overall. The more people who can really tune into this stuff and understand it ahead of time before it becomes a problem, the better we'll be positioned to fight back against the establishment, you know, interests, the blob that is always saying, well, this happened. Therefore, we need more interaction. Mm-hmm. Well, we are, we're, we're three quarters through this escalatory spiral before anyone finds out about it. Right. And, 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 and I think I actually uh, might have detected an undercovered escalatory spiral uh, this week. So we have a great video to start out with just to talk a little bit about the uh, Middle East foreign policy developments for the day. Joining me now to talk about all this, Lieutenant General Richard Newton, former U.S. Air Force Assistant Vice Chief of Staff and News Nation Senior National Security Contributor. Nice to see you on this Friday. Uh, let's start with the Strait of Hormuz. I mentioned this briefly, but it's a vital seaway for global trade. Um, can you talk about the global impacts if ships are not allowed to pass through this area? Well, good morning, Marnie. It is a uh, really what I would call a strategic choke point. Uh, that's a military term for it's an absolute key area, uh, really in the globe, around the globe. Uh, as you mentioned, 25% of the uh, oil passes through that choke point, uh, but also one third of the world's liquefied national uh, natural gas flows through there as well. So it's significant. And uh, over the last couple of years, Iran has seized uh, five commercial vessels, tankers, if you will. Uh, they've also uh, harassed dozens and even last month they took uh, a, a, a civilian tanker and took it hostage and it's still in port in Iran so this is this is a significant development and my last point is however if, if we're contemplating and, and putting armed forces or at least offering up US armed forces to board ships to protect them commercial ships this is unprecedented certainly never happened in my watch so this is this is significant yeah a major development and all it is happening all right you see the world through a keyhole, right? When they do this sort of thing, they intentionally shorten the time horizon to make what's important about the existing strategic moment. And then they say, well, Iran did this thing and this is a very important strategic thing. So therefore we need to respond. And they actually understate the response. It's U.S. Marines on commercial ships and 3,000 additional troops deployed to the Middle East and additional air support to the Middle East. Uh, this is a, this is a much bigger change that they did. Each I found three different articles, each saying different things about this. As far as like which components are being changed, they all agreed on the on the Marines on commercial ships. All the coverage was exactly like this. Where what they said on on both Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, all that kind of stuff. Where they say Iran's been attacking our ships, so then we need to do this. We need to respond. Guess what? Guess what? We've been attacking each other's ships for years. Years we've been playing this game with Iran, and I just discovered it this week. I'm also was ignorant to this. Where we've been, we've been okay. So there's this tanker, right? Okay, 
<sighs> okay, so there's this <laughs> tanker. It's a Greek tanker called the Suez Rien in April. Was forced to head to Texas rather than China, right? So we we literally went up beside it, pointed guns, and say you're going to Texas. Brought this thing to Texas, where then uh, U.S. companies, uh, uh, you know, basically held it, um, carrying Iranian oil. According to recent media reports, U.S. companies are hesitant to discharge the oil because they fear reprisal attacks in Iran from the Persian Gulf. That was written at that time. Last year, the U.S. seized a tanker carrying Iranian oil in Greece and attempted to take the cargo, but the Greek, but a Greek court ruled against the confiscation, and Tehran seized two Greek tankers in response uh, to the U.S. move and released them after the court's ruling. So we're like playing this piracy game with Iran where we're t- taking each other's tankers from these other company, private companies simultaneously. Right, we got pirate Biden, like the the, I, the the great pirate Biden out there <laughs> sailing the high seas, taking oil tankers, and then using this as an escalatory, <laughs> escalatory <laughs> excuse to bring more uh, potential problems with that. God, like, this is in beautiful. In 2021, the U.S. government sold two million barrels of Iranian oil for 110 million from a tanker seized near the UAE. During the Trump administration, we're doing the same thing. So Trump can also be a pirate, right? We need to make a Trump pirate. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll make a Trump pirate. We're equal opportunity <laughs> Trump pirate makers. Uh, the, the, the insanity here is that we've been playing this crazy privateer pirate game for years, and no one knows about it. And now is resulting in escalatory spiral over the Strait of Hormuz, right? And I'm not saying that Iran is the victim and America is the, is, is the good guy here. All I'm saying is I don't trust that dude when he doesn't give the additional context. And I'll trust the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post when they don't give the additional context that we've been fighting this stupid mercantile, crazy sanction regime war there. Because how the America always friends is like, well, we're just enforcing sanctions, right? But what are you doing with the oil? Where's that money going? What are we do? And, then, and then how could we be surprised when sanctions result in war when we use it as part of the escalatory spiral that could result in war? Sorry, I got really excited about that. I love that, man. I love it. Uh, that, that that was that was fun. That was uh, that was peak David outrage, right <laughs> da- there. Da- David in a Sonic the Hedgehog shirt, just going yeah. like, "We're just having piracy battles." <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like like you said earlier. It's like it's like a game of civilization, right? Yeah. Where you can like take the territory and you can either like raise it to the ground or like take the resources and sell it on the open market. That's what we're doing. We're doing that in real life. We're just like pirating well and it's the same thing like in the civilization game like there's a certain point in time where you can have like these privateer vessels that are like unflagged and you can just go start raiding people mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and it's not like part of your nation and remember <laughs> this is the same guy trying to build a new nato for the middle east this is the same guy who's outraged by china getting better normalized relationships between saudi arabia and iran well of course china can do that you know why because we're pirates why would you cut a deal with pirates We've been taking their oil and selling it on the open market and then benefiting it. Who knows where that money goes? It go into the general fund of the U.S. taxpayer? Isn't that crazy? Like, think about that for a second. Okay, I, I, I need some clarity here. Let's, let's take a couple deep breaths while I ask some questions, try to get some answers on behalf of the other people who might be a little bit confused. Yeah. So, okay, so the U.S. and Iran are taking each other's oil tankers from pri- that are owned by private companies that are just trafficking oil mm-hmm. from countries that produce it to countries that purchase it, mm-hmm. right? And, and and literally, so we we pulled up adjacent to an Ir- Iranian ship, effectively pointed guns at it and said, "You're not going to China. You're going to the U.S." Yeah, and it came to the U.S. multiple times. And no. then and then yeah. the oil was sold or someplace else that is controlled by U.S. interests. And then the, the oil was sold to the United States. Were sold to somebody. It, that's what's not clear about the coverage. Uh, uh, the coverage that I have here 
pretty much just quotes in at 2021, $110, $110 million from a tanker season in the UAE. So this is like... This is 2 million barrels of Iranian crude. What did China have to say about that? They probably were expecting that oil. Yeah. Ex- can you imagine why Chinese relationships are probably not going great? And that <laughs> bridges into the next thing we're talking about. But yeah, exactly. That's that, crazy. I mean, I mean, like, that's the crazy thing about sanctions. People think sanctions are just, oh, they just, oh, they, we just put out a word and then all these businesses comply. Never mind that what it is is a blockade, right? And it's a virtual blockade that we are orchestrating. And then additionally that somebody is profiting from, I mean, $110 million is a small change in, in the U.S. foreign policy budget, but it's not nothing. <laughs> you know, like, man, where did that money go? And what is the accountability to the taxpayer for when this gets out of control, right? We are, we are currently spending uh, how many tens of billions of dollars in Ukraine? Oh, yeah. We have additional commitments in Taiwan. We'll talk about that in a minute. We're trying to forge some new NATO arrangement in Ukraine, which is just another huge death clock to, you know, nuclear annihilation the same way it was in World War One. And then we have, you know, the 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 brick system rising up and that and then that pressure. Meanwhile, we're just like, ah, piracy games. That 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 can't possibly spiral out of control and have some kind of problem. I mean, it's just like and and I and imagine you're not the only one who's very surprised that this is current US foreign policy. That uh, that we have a pri- a private a privateer piracy clause (laughs) that we're operating on right now uh yeah wasn't this wasn't this sort of thing going on and part of the cause of the american revolution as well british like intercepting mercantile ships going to the u.s and things like that wasn't wasn't that something that was happening to ask russ i don't know yeah i I know there's some stuff there but i can't i can't recall the barbary pirate pirates with uh tj yeah that's true jefferson that's true yeah maybe that's what i'm thinking of but in any case of triple e all that stuff uh Pretty wild stuff. Yeah, right. I mean, I it, it really blew my mind when I when I first read. I was like, "Huh." I, I'm surprised that Iran. What what happened? My mental model when I first read it was like, "Huh." Why would Iran do that? <laughs> I mean, it's very strange that Iran would just out of the blue attack one of our ships. They're not crazy. They know. You know so they I need know. to do some deeper research. Well, here. It, that, that's actually a really important point. Is like I think a lot, often people like oftentimes because we're looking at foreign policy through this keyhole is that you have some general come up on TV and they say this thing and everybody's just like, yeah, we need to do something about that, right? But like you you got to remember these actors are not crazy. Like they are acting rationally according to how they are seeing the world in that current like in that current moment in time. It's not just like Iran just like. Yep, we're just going to start uh, picking off ships from the biggest dog on the block, right? <laughs> like, like that's not what Iran's doing. It's like there's this back and forth that's going with a little bit of digging. You're understanding that oh, we've been doing this for years back and forth with each other. Um, it's not just like they're just like we're going to attack America now. <laughs> like it's, that's Out not what world, happened. Yeah, right. this is crazy. Why would they do that? It seems like just a terrible idea. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it seems like the initial cause is and i am i got more research to do i tried to do as much as i could this week to really get my arms around this thing but this as far as i got was there is the uh when obama uh created the iran nuclear deal sanctions were removed uh we returned money money that we stole from them after the iranian revolution to be clear, it was theft. We froze their accounts then took them, right? And then held on to them. And that was a we, long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the 60s. Right? God, I my, my so, so we gave them that, that, that money Anyways, back. We gave them that money back and we reduced the sanctions. Trump comes in, he says that's a bad deal, and we exchanged all that for nuclear inspections, right? Trump says that was a bad deal. He ends that nuclear deal. 
and reimposes the inspections, basically saying you have to comply with what we think you should comply with. And basically a more rigorous inspection regime that was agreed to in the deal. So uh, Jimmy Carter's 1979 is when it started. Okay. So, um, yeah, I was way off. Jeez. So the, um, don't rely on me for when things happen. That's not my specialty. I know what <laughs> happened. I just don't always know the dates. That's that's always it, it could happen in the 1700s for yeah, all. I, I just know the <laughs> progression of events, but when things happen, I don't does, does not stick. Anyways, um, so when when Trump gets out of that, there's a new inspection regime, and that's probably the origin of this particular tit for tat that we're playing with the piracy question, right? Where uh, we're trying to enforce the sanction regime, they try to move oil out or oil or or return vessels, and we intercept them and then we do stuff. Right. And at some point, the only one I have documentation, like certified, like cited documentation is the 2021 one. But it also references that um, Iran was trying to sell oil to Venezuela, which is funny because Venezuela is an oil producing country. It used to be one of the largest in the world, but because of socialism, they failed. Um, but they're trying to sell it there. And there's a huge problem there with gas and with energy and all that kind of stuff. And we intercepted their ship and, and returned it to America and took the oil, oh according God. to this. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unfuck the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Now, a very different foreign policy issue is also coming up simultaneously. Well, so they're trying to uh, just think about the ambition here, and you almost got to be appreciative of it. The Biden administration is doing everything they're doing in Ukraine, and we beat that dead horse to death, right? They have this new Middle Eastern policy with the new NATO, trying to fight the BRICS uprising, trying to fight China's influence in the Middle East. And the piracy, <laughs> the piracy strategy. We just got to call it that from now on. And then additionally, they have new, there's a lot of new bubbling up of, um, of Taiwan and how we're going to respond to Taiwan. Um, I have, I'm not very good at Taiwan history. So I have a quick video. It's about 43 seconds long. Um, I hope people will watch and listen to the whole thing. And now U.S. President Joe Biden signs into law a bill that approves the first agreement under a bilateral trade initiative between the U.S. and Taiwan. Biden, though, said that certain sections of the law raise constitutional concerns. Biden adds he would treat those sections as non-binding if they infringe upon his constitutional authority to negotiate with a foreign partner. The first agreement under the 21st Century Trade Pact covers general principles related to customs and border procedures, as well as regulatory and anti-corruption practices. Both countries hope this will facilitate bilateral trade and investment flows by minimizing border formalities. So what's interesting, there's a couple different dynamics here and a couple different threads to pull on. Number one, trade is generally good. It's a good thing. Uh, this isn't really a trade agreement, <laughs> though. <laughs> it's uh, let me go. It it cooperation on trade facilitation. So it doesn't change any existing trade tariffs or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, it it basically mandates Taiwan adopt a bunch of our regulatory practices and vice versa. Anti corruption, whatever that means. Keep in mind that the prosecutor in Ukraine was fired on anti corruption for investigating Prisma. <laughs> so who knows what that means in this case? <laughs> And uh, small, medium-sized enterprise regulation, basically saying um, about how those folks can get access to regulated international markets. 
That's according to the Council on Foreign Relations, believe it or not. So, um, yeah, interesting story. Uh, the president, talk about the internal politics first. So last week we talked about how the president got all this authority after World War II to do a bunch of things in foreign policy they otherwise couldn't do, right? Part of that additionally was, in name and precedes this, was the uh, executive agreements. So these are called T's. T- uh, trade executive agreements are these kind of innovative things that came out in the between the interwar period to the afterwar period um, that where the executive branch could pretty much create law without Congress internationally uh, through an agreement between two executives, right? So they're considered, and this is the great Wikipedia article on this, politically binding, but not legally binding. The hell is that supposed to mean? Basically it means that if someone doesn't violate them, it's like, it's kind of like a shame on you sort of thing, but mm-hmm. there's no real enforcement, but p- legally binding should in international terms mean enforcement, meaning we're going to do something in response. Um, what what is the politically binding like enforcement maneuver there? Is it just like you're not cool with the culture in yeah. DC anymore? Like Think is, about, is that what it means? Uh, is it like a social ostracization? <laughs> it's so funny because like uh, the Biden administration is simultaneously applauding this trade, this executive agreement. What was the executive agreement between NATO and Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Uh, not, it wasn't legally binding, uh, but it was politically. Uh, Does that make sense? Mm. The U.S. is supposed to feel ashamed that it went back on its word not to expand NATO towards Russia. No, Oops. the U.S. just goes, oh, we never agreed to that. It's not in paper, blah, 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 blah. I mean, like, come on. Yeah. You got like psychopaths over here, like making these kind of agreements. You can't trust them. What are you talking about? Some schoolyard shit. Some like no take backs. Yes, I? exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So this and this this only exists because the Supreme Court basically said this is OK back in 1957. All right, because there was adjudication about whether or not the executive can do this. And uh, we know during the Cold War, there was a tremendous amount of consolidation of power under the president because everyone was wanting to fight communism. I was so afraid of it. So in the Supreme court was also subject to that. And that's one of the important things that people should know. Congress gave up a lot of their authority in war making, such as the war powers act and other things. The Supreme court also engaged in that during the cold war, but wait, there's more. All right. I found this great, uh, Brookings Institute study on, uh, executive agreements. Get this. All right. It's kind of dense, but I'll unpack it after I read it. Analysis revealed major differences with the online publication regime of executive agreements. I'm just punching that in. As just 31% of executive agreements reported to Congress were included in the official online database. Just 31% of all the agreements out there were, that were reported to Congress were included on the official online database for what are out there huh. as a third party to look at. Far less than one, would lo- one could locate in uh, comparable private databases. Other problems were evident in the congressional reporting regime as well, as a substantial number of cover memos suggested that the executive agreement in question were being transmitted late, while private databases contained several thousand such agreements that were never transmitted to Congress. Thousands of existing executive agreements have never been communicated to Congress. Moreover, problematic still, the cover letters showed that the legal basis for many of the executive branch's uses of executive agreements was questionable, as less than half pointed to express statutory uh, authorization for engaging in the executive agreement in question, 
while 17% cited statutes that could not plausibly be read as providing any such authorization. Jesus. Oh my God. <laughs> that means the executive's just going out there making agreements without any congressional approval at all or, or like statute to justify them. No legal basis. Yeah. And that means that. it's not just some of it. 17% had no basis at all. And a majority of it didn't have like a clear legal basis. Do you have any idea what time frame the, these uh, executive agreements are are based in are these are these just recently are these since the 70s this like, is since they were created in 1957 in 57 yeah, okay. yeah. And this was like uh and the study was done just a couple years ago i forgot to link it shut I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to send you the link so we could punch it in here so people could look it up themselves and, and if i'm reading this right what it appears to be is like there's all these executive executive agreements some of them security some of them on trade and stuff like that they should be in order to be constitutional by the 1957 declaration of this or i mean decision on this they should be in pursuit of some existing code that Congress has passed, right? They have to have a connection to uh, an authorization. But this is saying almost none of them are. <laughs> They're just out there, like, just gallivanting, like, making deals that have no basis in law, that, that the executive branch, like, it seems like doesn't have the authority to create. Yes. Well, wait, here, here's At something. Least 17%, here's, here's something interesting too. So the, the case is a blocky act of 1972 requires the president to inform the Senate within 60 days of any executive agreement being made. No restriction was placed on presidential powers to make such an agreement. The notification requirement enabled Congress to vote to cancel any executive agreement or to refuse to fund its impl- implementation. But if none of these are being reported in any way, it's crazy. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so what's interesting about this Taiwan thing is this is in part because it passed Congress as as like a part of an agreement. It was initially an executive agreement and now it's come through as a full um, like agreement between with Congress is that the Congress is now recognizing after Trump that the president probably has too much authority to do unilateral trade changes. Therefore, they're trying to reassert there. And that's a, probably a major um story in this and there's like a bipartisan agreement there and i am in favor of it uh presidents shouldn't be able to use trade practices willy-nilly in order to change industrial policy just without any check from congress it's wrong to do that well it is and it has real effects on the american people i mean it can have major price implications for consumer goods that we're used to purchasing at a given price i mean it can change the you know all all sorts of stuff that have trickle down effects on on everyday people so of course it should be covered and and you know monitored by congress absolutely and and, and if you notice there the part where they say and biden said that there are parts that might have constitutional issues what he means is the parts where congress is saying he can't do something Mm. right that's what he means there and that and therefore he's and he's basically saying i'm just going to ignore that part obviously (laughs) so think how extra constitutional we are and i know we've made this argument a hundred times on this podcast about how far we are from the congressional intent or uh, constitutional intent and what that means for if the executive can just say, well, I'm just going to ignore what Congress says, you know, that that means you have to have a lawsuit in order to restrain them. Wild. So uh, the other part of that and the other part of the kind of the um, the narrative here was what this means for China uh, American relations on that. And I have this great video from uh, the uh, Quincy Institute uh, to talk a little bit about that. Did you know that Taiwan is possibly the most dangerous flashpoint on Earth? That an actual war could break out between the U.S. and China over this island? 
Experts say that war would be catastrophic for everyone involved, which makes the delicate peace that currently exists between Beijing and Washington all the more critical to maintain. But in Washington, there's a lot of political talk that makes war between the U.S. and China sound inevitable. Listen, I believe in a one-China policy, but I would be willing to fight for Taiwan. How do we deter the PLA from invading Taiwan by denial? Building up the military deterrent on the island of Taiwan, it's all to prevent a war. The catchphrase being thrown around is deterrence. That's Washington speak for a massive arms buildup that proponents say will make China back down. But that's far from certain. Taiwan is a non-negotiable issue for Chinese nationalists. If they think that the U.S. is trying to permanently separate Taiwan, they will use force. Uh, the more force the United States uses, the more force China will use. And if they lose any initial engagement, that's just going to be the first step in a much longer, much bloodier conflict. So when does an arms buildup aimed at deterring become a provocation? It seems we're already on a path to war unless both sides provide credible assurances that they're committed to avoiding war and maintaining the status quo. When Nixon went to China in 1972, Taiwan was the greatest barrier to normalizing relations between the U.S. and China. So a delicate understanding was formed. The U.S. basically said it acknowledges China's claim to Taiwan, while also saying the island's legal status is undetermined. The U.S. is open to peaceful reunification, but doesn't support formal independence for Taiwan. Finally, and this is important, the U.S. is ambiguous about how it might respond to a conflict between Beijing and Taipei. In return, China would pursue a peaceful approach to unification and only use force when absolutely necessary to prevent the permanent separation of Taiwan from China. Now, for more than 50 years, this understanding helped maintain peace in the Taiwan Strait and generated prosperity for all parties involved. But lately, the U.S. and China have been escalating threats, and that's eroded trust. With China's increased military bluster against Taiwan, calls are growing in Washington for the U.S. to explicitly commit our military to defending Taiwan. We do need to change our policy and explicitly state clearly and deliberately that we will aid Taiwan if China goes to the jugular there. For decades, we've been ambiguous about that. They call it strategic clarity. It's a major shift in policy that fundamentally goes against the U.S. commitment about how it would respond to a Chinese attack on Taiwan. And that tests Beijing's trust in U.S. intentions. With all this in mind, shouldn't we try to halt the slide towards confrontation and avoid forcing Beijing into a corner that only increases the likelihood of war? Should we also consider what the people of Taiwan want? Polls suggest they don't want to be swallowed up by China, but they don't want a war either. Wouldn't a less confrontational approach between Washington and Beijing serve the people of Taiwan better than a slow march towards a war in which their home becomes a battleground for two nuclear-armed superpowers? The U.S. faces a geostrategic challenge in China, which means the stakes are high. The threat of war comes with incalculable costs. But our many shared vital interests still require cooperation and can bring benefits. So the U.S. needs to keep a diplomatic door open if it wants to have a partner on the other side. So that's the Quincy Institute. I highly recommend them if you're a foreign policy nerd and you want to get into it. They have really great stuff. They do great panels. They do great articles. They just do wonderful work. Uh, they're um, just a think tank um, here in the States. So I want I want folks to just think really carefully about like 
Okay, so this new engagement with Taiwan, additional trade barriers aren't being lowered. Uh, we have a bunch of new regulations that are going to apply to Taiwan. This is an in- intertangling of American relations with uh, with Taiwan. We had Speaker Pelosi fly to Taiwan recently, uh, which was quite provocative for the Chinese. Uh, because keep in mind, the Chinese themselves are saying Taiwan is ours and has always been ours, right? Um, and they've existed and prospered in this place of ambiguity about whether or not they are China's or whether or not they're a free country. And the people who are saying, hey, we need to make sure that we beef up Taiwan's defenses in order to prevent China from ever doing that. I want to ask him a question. Why would it work there when it didn't work in Ukraine? We've been beefing up Ukraine's defenses for a very long time. Additionally, Ukraine has a bunch of ground between it and Moscow. This is 20 miles of water, right? Um, if, if, if this was, uh, and what if beefing up their defense actually led us closer to war? What standard of evidence would they use to know when it isn't? Because it seems to me that it is. Uh, and what I want to do is try to put the listener ahead of the curve <laughs> on this escalatory spiral, right? Which is that, you know, I'm not saying it's necessarily bad that we have this trade agreement with Taiwan. I'm, I, I really, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I feel about it at all, right? Because it doesn't actually low trade barriers. So it doesn't actually gonna make anyone more prosperous. It's just going to regulate each party more. So I'm not sure if that's really that beneficial. But I would say that, you know, the diplomatic door question is really, really critical, right? And we stopped doing that to Russia. At one point, the State Department said, we're not talking to Russia anymore because they're doing the wrong thing. Rather than doing the opposite and peaceful loving and peaceful pursuing thing, which is com- continue to communicate even when there are high tensions, such as even at the height of the Cold War, we still could talk to the USSR, but we're not talking to Russia now. To not do that in China is critical. And then what is it going to do to push China closer to Russia if we continue this pressure and build up for Taiwan to, you know, to do what uh, uh, I think it was uh, Senator Cotton mentioned there, uh, which is to make them an impenetrable force, fortress and use the bodies of the Taiwanese people as our backstop for China, China's expansion. Right. I'm, I'm curious because you mentioned that Taiwan has prospered in this ambiguity between whether they are a part of China or they're in an independent state. Is there any clarity on like what the um, majority of the Taiwanese people want or what they consider themselves to be? Because I know like with Ukraine as an example, there are some folks that feel more unified with Russia, feel more Russian, and some folks that feel more independent. Is there a similar dynamic in Taiwan that we know of? I think the majority in Taiwan um, want to maintain independence from uh, from China, much like in Hong Kong, there was a majority that wanted to maintain independence, but there is a minority that is China friendly. Um, it's it's hard to it's hard to say. I mean, it's it's one of those things that maybe democracy isn't the best solution for, right? I mean, it's better to not have a democratic vote on some things, such as, um, you know, do I have rights, right? Uh, or do I do we join the the, the communist you know government? Um, but I, I I think you know in general, the question is is what is the right use of U.S. military presence, right? Uh, and should we be? I mean, God. It's been it's been funny as people have criticized the Ukraine war, basically to say, but we should be doing the same thing we're doing in Ukraine in Taiwan, without learning the lesson of maybe arming a country on the border of another country that is a major you know emergent superpower, might be more provocative than not. You would think, especially with the 
uh, live example going on in Ukraine on the opposite side of that same, you know, mass of land. And I think the other question to ask there, apart from should we be, is can we be? And, you know, we haven't discussed this directly, but it was also in the news that uh, Fitch, the credit ratings agency, uh, downgraded the U.S. Mm. debt from AAA to AA+, which is basically saying it's a little riskier now to invest in government debt, U.S. government debt, than it was simply because we are in a state where we're spending a ton of money. We have no real clear strategy or plan that's been expressed to address that other than just print more, which is, of course, threatening and risky for holders of the U.S. government debt. So can we be uh, putting our military might, in quotes, out around the world at the expense of you know, our, our credibility as a, a debtor nation, which we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. To answer your so. question about how Taiwanese citizens feel about the China versus Taiwan situation, what I'm seeing right here in a Pew survey was found that about 60% of, Ty- of Taiwanese citizens have an unfavorable view of China, while 52% support closer economic ties with China. Only 36% favor closer political ties, though. Um, conversely, more than two thirds, uh, have a favorable view of the United States with uh, 79% supporting closer political ties with the U S hmm. so interesting, which well, could, which could mean, right. And keep in mind what, what's China's line here. China's line is if we can lose, if we can lose Taiwan permanently, then we'll go to war. That's mm-hmm. the line they've drawn and have drawn since the 1970s. Well, and one of the biggest important factors here is uh, Taiwan produces 50% of the semiconductors in the world mm-hmm. um, with Taiwan Semiconductor uh, Manufacturing Company, is that T- TSMC, um, being the biggest player in the world. And that is that seems to me like what the real fight is over here is like this is the digital age, it's the arms race, it's the need of those semiconductors. Um, what do you, what do you feel about, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's, uh, kind of thing here on this? I I know I've seen him talking a lot about how if he was president, he would be using Ukraine as like a negotiating factor to pull Russia away from China, which then would, uh, would make Taiwan probably less of an issue because China would have less of this like Russia alliance, uh, kind of in the foreground. Mm right there in the meantime like that one helps kind of preserve taiwan because of the semiconductor issue and then hopefully allows us in the u.s to uh, bump up manufacturing of semiconductors in the meantime Mm -hmm. and then incentivizing that that's a good question i don't know yeah Yeah, Uh, that's at least what i've seen his 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 policy on this has seems to be the most uh um articulated and the most like like a bit the biggest logic thread throughout while everybody else just like must defend taiwan you know like it's like there's a lot of uh, i'm actually seeing the uh the thought process behind it which is much more interesting to me absolutely one i think similarly he he says you know in the in response to the question of would you defend taiwan he has said at least i'm recalling uh strategically yes until we have enough semiconductor production in the united states to not be dependent upon that because i think that really is the core dependency that we have on taiwan right now and and that's part of this negotiation with russia on the ukraine stuff is to help fill in that like five years or however long it would take yeah um for that and then we can just have kind of a more hands-off policy right. on taiwan and afterwards. we know semiconductors have been built more in the united states and other areas in the world 
in the recent years too. Like there's been a lot of new semiconductor mm-hmm. startups because because yeah. people have seen this coming for some time. For sure. And and I'm I'm also very skeptical. People are like, oh, China's whole goal is to take over Taiwan to to keep all the semiconductors. And it's like I'm not sure the semiconductor businesses survive an invasion. <laughs> True. Number one. Number two. Even if you do that, what what's valuable is the human capital. Number one, and that's they, those people tend to die in wars, especially in wars on a small island. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to include a lot of rockets, uh, and then uh, in machinery, which doesn't survive explosions. Right. So all the valuable things um, doesn't make a lot of sense for China to do that unless. But you have to understand. We're seeing it like a semiconductor fight. I think that's prob- pro- true from the American point of it's view. It's a variable. It's not their, their point of view. It's a religious fight from their point of view. Mm. It has to do with the very origins of the Chinese state, the state, the Communist Party state, and the fact that the people who were opposed to them all went to Taiwan and have been there ever since, right? Mm. And it has to do with the fact that this is so close to them, that it's this area that they've held traditionally over a long period of time as a part of the China uh, government. So, I mean, pre Mao. So it's a, it's a completely different set of variables for them. And it's the idea of losing something like that is so critical. It'd be like us losing the Florida Keys, right? Yeah. Uh, what's the, what's the island just off of, uh, uh, off of California, San Juan? Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. It'd be like so. losing that right there. It's right on, right next to us. Um, and then what's interesting there is all the hawk, hawks saying, oh, well, but they're uh, policing, they're, they're interfering in the sea between America, between China and, you know, Taiwan, as if that's not their seas, right? I mean, yeah, that's kind of insane. It's pretty crazy. We should probably jump to these last two stories before we uh, run out of time here. Or, or maybe we should pick one because, you know, we've got about 12 minutes left here before we got to take off. So. All right. So, uh, yeah. So a Minneapolis judge has sentenced, uh, I don't, I'm going to butcher this guy's name. I'm sorry. Tao Thao? A former police officer who held back bystanders as as, as other officers pinned George for George Floyd to the ground, four years and nine months in state prison. Uh, so he's been he's been accused or been convicted of that. Um, just some background context: the guy that everyone associates with this incident is a guy named Chauvin, right? D- Derek Chauvin. Yeah, and uh, he's the senior officer at the scene. He was convicted of murder and manslaughter in 2021. Uh, and later pleaded guilty in a federal case uh, for removal of his constitutional rights. That's what the federal cases are about. And this is what uh, this uh, gentleman, former police officer, is being uh, convicted of. Two other officers, Alexander Kung, I would <laughs> just probably say Kung. <laughs> Kung. And Thomas Lane pleaded guilty to state charges of aiding and abetting manslaughter and were convicted with Thou in their federal case. The judge wrote that under Minneapolis uh, Police Department policies, it was objectively unreasonable to, among other things, encourage fellow officers to engage in dangerous prone restraint for nine minutes and 24 seconds, encouraging those officers not to use a hobble, actively insist in restraining in their restraint by acting as a human, quote, human traffic cone, end quote, and prevent bystanders from rendering medical aid. Um, and then lastly, the, the judge said Tao's actions were even more unreasonable in light of the fact that he was under a duty to intervene, which is very important, right? Because that's a very specific code, duty interview code, uh, to stop the other officer's excessive use of force and was trained to render medical aid. So what's interesting about this is how it flips a lot of things that are current existing federal code on its head, right? So typically uh, officers in Georgia, which is called... Um, Whoa, I just spaced it. What's it called? Qualified immunity. Qualified immunity. 
wow, that was well, that was just like zipped right out of my head there. Yeah, so um, that's not holding up in this case, right? right? It's saying it flips a lot of those things on its head. Said no, police officers have a duty to protect the lives of civilians during this sort of um, interaction. Okay, so and then this sort of creates a new a new paradigm, right? Because typically at an active crime scene, there will be an, an officer or officers dealing with the crime, and then there are always other officers managing the a crowd if there's a crowd around, right? Mm-hmm. So this is saying that instead of those officers keeping potentially, you know, aggressive or otherwise people from intervening in the crime that's being committed or it's being policed in that environment, those officers then need to turn their attention to their colleagues uh, and the the crime being you know policed and protect the the person being restrained by the officers from the their fellow officers. Mm-hmm. That's what this is saying. It's actually even more a little more radical than that. If you notice, it says he's his crime is that he didn't allow the people. He did his job was his crime. He didn't, he, he didn't allow, allow the people, the civilians, to interrupt what was happening. And he didn't interrupt what was happening, and he was trained in medical aid, and he didn't help. So that's that was what was crazy about it. And I, it's a it's it's a very interesting thing. I'm not sure how to feel about it. Right on one end, I kind of see what you're kind of pointing at, which is like maybe he didn't know. Maybe he was too busy. Like his focus was in another direction. I mean, obviously, it's saying that he assisted in the thing that he um, encouraged those officers not to use a hobble. I don't um, know what that is. It, I. I Good question. What is a hobble? I didn't get around to I'm on it. I mean, that the, the, the question to me is that, you know, sort of around the diffusion of responsibility, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's some of these, these famous situations, stories um, that have highlighted this where, you know, uh, for example, the Kitty, Gen- Kitty Genovese case, right? Where like she was stabbed on the street and she's crying out for help and bystanders heard her in, in New York City or, or you know a large populous area and didn't no one did anything because they thought that someone else would do something mm. like it, this is sort of adjacent to that in a sense because essentially what it's saying is you're guilty as a bystander an officer or otherwise seemingly if you are capable of intervening in uh someone being harmed and you don't you're guilty for their for the crime that was committed by someone else. Yeah, I mean, I, I, at minimum, it's saying an officer is right because that's kind of what we have them for. But but how <laughs> right? But but how how strong is that is that division here in this case? Yeah, I knew it was a horse term, hobble. Yeah, it's, it's just a strap that you use to put around a human. Or okay, a, so something an animal's they, legs. It's something they could have yeah. used to to restrain Keep George Floyd moving, instead yeah. of restricts, a knee yeah, on movement, his neck. Essentially. Additionally, that kneeling on the back of someone's neck is a terrible idea for restraining I mean, somebody. Yeah, um, and I and I really recommend uh, folks who are like who are trying to navigate the question of like physical restraint. Check out uh, the Gracie brothers, their stuff on this. The Gracie brothers have a whole course that they teach police officers um, uh, that is really, really great uh, that to to safely restrain people in ways that would prevent some of these bad outcomes. Um, and, and then and then there's are some legislators are going too far. Like, for example, like banning chokeholds and various different joint locks and stuff like that. That's probably a really bad idea. Um uh, for officer safety and be able to restrain somebody. Yeah. Uh, but the, the one that, that these officers use in this very specific circumstance was too high up on the neck. It should be in the center back. And once you restrain his arms, you should roll him over so that he's sitting on his back. Uh, and that would probably be a more proper way to keep uh, someone healthy. And then lastly, um, and, and I, and I, 
I hate to mention this because it's such a, like a thing that a lot of people say is a dog whistle, but there was no doubt that the guy was on drugs and was probably having cardiac problems with those drugs. And there was probably a hesitation to use, to, to help the guy. And that was probably criminal, right? Yeah. Right. If the guy's having problems, you should, your drug duties to police officers to help the guy. Yeah. Right? So I think that point stands even given the guy's drug use. And oh, for sure. Problem, for sure. Because of that. Applying, yeah, life-saving aid would, would be like key. Right. Yeah. Right. Especially over nine minutes. Nine minutes is a long time. Man. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So anyways, that's a interesting development and there's going to be probably a lot of more debate about criminal justice reform um, and what that means and how to think about that. We've got to dive into that, get some more principle-based discussion, but we don't have the time for that today because we got to talk about rep, uh, the head of the oversight committee, rep James Comer. Uh, he had, uh, he has an interview on the payments for the Joe uh, Biden family received while he was VP. We will link to it in the show notes. Let me just give you the short one. Uh, the short summary here, because this is really important. We've been talking about it for weeks. Number one, timeline. This is David's timeline to these shenanigans. Joe Biden becomes VP, right? Two, family receives payments, millions of dollars, gifts like diamonds uh, from China, supercars from other countries, et cetera. And these are, you know, shell companies from other countries. These are payments to the Biden family directly and to shell companies owned by the Bidens. Um, th- that's what came out this week. That's step number two, right? That's what we've been waiting on, which is we know Biden is VP. We know his family has all these relations, these strange relations with other uh, entities. We know a bunch of people in the Biden family have been getting payments, not just Hunter, also like the family dog. I'm going I'm to get a little excited. Well, and like, I think there's an interesting corollary here as well. There was a Russian oligarch who gifted a bunch of money. Yeah. And then when all of the assets were being seized from Russian oligarchs during the uh, Ukraine invasion, this guy was exempted. Whoa, I Which, didn't know that. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll see if I can find the article. Yeah, and, and, the, and the accusation by uh, Representative Comer is that the these funds were intermingled and accessible to Biden. Here's how he think why he thinks that. We have a text message from Hunter to his to Hunter's daughter saying that he was paying for Biden's living expenses. Another dimension was Joe Byron. Joe Biden is a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring Joe Biden the pirate back. He's already back up there. Oh, I love it. By the way, I just have to say the one with the sunglasses, the, the John the Lennon right? sunglasses, that's just, that's choice. That's, oh, that's thumbnail material. We need to see the yeah. aviators though. We need, we need to adjust for the aviators. <laughs> All right. So, um, so review, Joe Biden becomes president, family receives payments. Biden happens to pursue policy that appears to assist the family members income streams, meaning these income streams are coming in and Biden does policies in order to preserve that. Great example is the Russian oligarch. Another one that we know a lot about is Burisma. The investigator Shokin is investigating Burisma. Burisma, he is, he is, we have video of Biden at the CFR meeting saying, I went in and I got this guy fired. And, you know, now that guy is no longer. And then soon after that, those charges are dropped by the next guy coming in. So how this all relates is that is the question is, is those payments, is that influence peddling? And influence peddling. And last week I said, if it's not illegal, it should be. What I meant by that is the status is less important to me than the ought, right? Ought it be illegal? Absolutely. We now are discovering how illegal and corrupt this possibly could be. The current existing status is that it would be illegal if he is not registered as a foreign agent, right? And I'm not sure I care about that as much as I just care about, you know, it not happening, right? And I'm not sure them registering as a foreign agent would have prevented it from happening. But the crazy thing is, 
is we're in the world we're in right now where it is illegal if you're not a foreign agent. None of these people are foreign agents. Like they're not registered that way. So is all it, of this was illegal. And then additionally, that is Biden liable for talking to them about these things as a foreign agent. That's another question that I don't have an answer yet for. Well, very obviously there is a lot more coming out daily and I'm suspicious that uh, this is going to be Biden's undoing and the way that the Dems get away from running him again in 2024. But that's just my speculation. We'll have to find out more about that as the evidence continues to flow in for today. That's all we have time for David Rand Kyle Mack. Thank you so much for watching at home. Please do like, subscribe, comment, all those things. Share this with your friends and we will see you next week. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. To help us fight internet censorship, we really appreciate it if you like, comment, subscribe, follow, hit the notification bell, do whatever it is that you do wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast. To find us on social media and everywhere around the web, visit us at linktree.com slash Liberty Portal pod. And remember... Well, of course China can do that. You know why? Because we're pirates. Why would you cut a deal with pirates? <laughs> We've been taking their oil and selling it on the open market and then benefiting it. Who knows where that money goes? Is it going to the general fund of the U.S. taxpayer? Isn't that crazy? Like, think about that for a second. <laughs>